Well, Happy New Year. It truly is a joy to be with you this morning, and uh, I'm grateful to Pastor Justin for going away on vacation. No, just... Um, actually, I really do um, pray you would pray for him during those times when he is able to go for some rest and refreshment. Um, I know that uh, Sandy and I appreciated over the years when we were able to get away, and uh, it is truly a blessing when your pastor can uh, seek some uh, fellowship with his own family and some rest and refreshment for his own soul. Uh, but it's a joy, and I'm grateful to him for this opportunity to uh, speak to you this morning. I think we need to begin by dealing with the elephant in the room. This is not the normal pulpit that this church uses. <laughs> Have you seen that thing? You, you've heard of um, one size fits all? Well, in this church, one size fits only tall. <laughs> and uh, I can't quite use the pulpit that's here because you'd, I'd need to stand on some boxes just to get up to Justin's height. Uh, in fact, that's been a struggle of mine uh, everywhere I've gone. Uh, different churches have kind of hacked off the bottom of their pulpit to bring it down so that I would be able to preach from it. Has any of you been to Grace Community Church in California? A couple of hands there. So you know that the pulpit in that church is on hydraulics. So you can push a button and actually the, the, the pulpit can go all the way down to the floor if you want it to. And I've often, I prayed, Lord, I'd love to preach at this church, not because of whose pulpit it is, but because I would just love to be able to push the button, set the pulpit at the perfect height, and then go on. Well, as it turns out, a number of years ago, I was invited to speak at a TMS chapel. And I thought, yes, this is my opportunity. I'll be able to go and push the button and set that pulpit to my height. And a couple of weeks beforehand, I received a letter from the seminary, and it said, Dear Pastor Parker, um, and it gave me all the descriptions about when the chapel meets, and it said at the bottom, it says, by the way, we meet in the chapel building for the TMS chapel. Well, the chapel building doesn't have an hydraulic pulpit. In fact, I think I had to stand on a box in that pulpit too. Um, and so I was a little disappointed that I wasn't going to get my opportunity to kind of push the button. And then four days before, I got another note from the seminary that said, due to the extreme heavy rains that we have experienced the past week, the chapel has been leaking and we're going to fix the leaks the week that you're here. So the chapel has been moved to the sanctuary. I said, yes! And um, it was really a pleasure for me to be able to push the button and set the pulpit at the perfect height. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. I also do remember the text that I preached on that day. Well, I've entitled this message, The Anatomy of Saving Faith. 
About two and a half weeks ago, Justin sent me a text and said, hey, could I have the title of your message and the passage that you'll preach on? And so I sent it to him and I said, uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, the anatomy of saving faith. And he texted me back a short time later and he said, wow, I'm going to be preaching this week on the anatomy of unbelief. So what a compliment it will be for you to come alongside and then preach on the anatomy of saving faith. We didn't set that up. That was the Holy Spirit, I believe, orchestrating um, some of the things that God is doing in our midst as pastor preaches through the Gospel of John. And I introduce this subject to you this morning. Let me begin by asking a simple question. Why has God saved you? Why has God saved you? If you are truly in Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, sins forgiven, and set free to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, why did God do this? Why have you been saved? What is the purpose for Jesus leaving heaven, coming to earth to save a people for His own possession? And if you are a Christian this morning, that includes you. Did God save you for you or did God save you for Himself? Did God save you to magnify your name in all the earth? Or did God save you to magnify His name in all the earth? I think the answer is obvious. We've been singing about it all morning long. Let the peoples praise you. Lord, let me bring you glory. Let me love the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind and with all my strength. And let me shout from the housetops the God who saved me for His good pleasure. And yet I often see and believe and hear that Christians, number one, don't often understand why God saved them. How many times have you heard a Christian say to you, I don't know why God saved me. I hear it all the time. But God did not save me for me. He saved me for Himself. Self-glory, or as the Bible calls it, vainglory, frequently becomes the believer's focus of saving faith rather than the glory and praise of God. And sadly, in some theological circles, saving faith is really thought to be the cause of my salvation rather than the instrument that God uses to bring me into His kingdom for the praise and glory of His name. You see, believing doesn't save me. Christ does. And genuine saving faith is the evidence that Jesus has called me to Himself, for Himself, to the glory of God the Father. Some of you will probably start a new Bible reading program this very day. 
Maybe you've already kind of dug in there and you got up early this morning and you've been reading through the Scriptures. I really want you to take note of something as you read through the Bible this year. Would you note how many times God says, I'm doing this for my name's sake. I'm doing this to make my name known among the peoples of the nations. I'm doing this, Israel. I'm doing this not for you. You've been a people who have rebelled against me. I'm doing this for my name's sake. I'm going to save you and call you out of darkness and into light so that others around you, the nations of the world, will be glad in me through your testimony and witness. Unfortunately, we live in a world today that I think has turned the gospel on its head. And it tells us that God saves sinners to improve our lives on earth. To make better, and you can fill in the blank. Maybe I need some help with my finances, or some help with my family, or some help at my job. And if I just would turn to Jesus, I would find, voila, instant help. Many of you know that even if that's kind of the gospel that you've been introduced to, that once you came into Christ and have walked with Him, you know that life is not always that way. Trials, struggles, pain, heartache. And yet in the midst of it all, God proves Himself faithful. He is there for us. He is with us. He loves us. He cares for us. Casting all of our anxiety on Him because He cares for you, Peter says. In both the Old and the New Testaments, this theme of God's glory and praising His name is everywhere. And yet I believe there's a Christian culture among us that wants us to reduce the Gospel to something that's for you and not for Him. And I really want us to start out this new year praising the Lord for the glorious gospel of His grace and celebrating who He is and what He is doing and why He has saved you so that you would be a vessel, an instrument of His grace and you would shine for Jesus in a world that desperately needs to hear His truth and you would be used by God to bring praise and glory to His name. Before we get to Titus chapter 3, I'd like to have you turn to Ephesians chapter 1. As a drummer, I kind of see chapter 1 as a drum roll. It starts out and builds to a great crescendo of praise to our God. This is the aim for why God has saved us. The bride of Christ is to make much of the groom. The body of Jesus lives to exalt the head. And three times in Ephesians chapter 1, we read about the purpose for why we were saved. To the praise of His glory and grace, verse 6. To the praise of His glory, verse 12. And again, to the praise of His glory, verse 14. To advance His good name and amazing grace to all the peoples of the world. 
Exactly what he told Abraham in the Old Testament for why he would use him and how he would use him to be a blessing to all of the nations of the world. God has chosen to save you so that you too would be a blessing to all of the peoples of the world by bringing the good news of Jesus Christ into this world that we live in today. How are we doing? Has that been our mindset? I would say if you're a regular attender here, you're here because that truth is proclaimed week in and week out. And yet in Luke 18.8, we read this, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Will the professed body actually be the possessed body? Or will Jesus say to some, depart from me, I never knew you. Let's read our text together in Titus chapter 3. And we'll begin in verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Back in the 90s, I was asked to debate a college professor at an upstate New York Christian college. And it really was regarding the lordship issue. Many of you will perhaps remember that issue back in those days. Uh, John MacArthur had written a book, The Gospel According to Jesus, and it drew quite a reaction. In fact, so much so that some others decided to write a book against that book, One being Zane Hodges, who wrote the book Absolutely Free, and another being Charles Ryrie, who wrote a book So Great Salvation. Well, in John Piper's new book, What is Saving Faith?, he comments on the lordship debate. And here's what he said, siding with MacArthur, he writes, Quote, the longer I live and the closer I come to heaven, the more troubling it is that so many people identify as Christians but give no evidence of being truly Christian. That so many professing Christians seem so cavalier about being new creatures in Christ. Well, that's really what the debate was all about. If you are saved by God's grace, Did you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, or did you just somehow receive Him as Savior, considering His Lordship, some maybe never at all, but otherwise somewhere down the road in the future? And as we were discussing these issues in a very cordial manner, this was interesting how it all started. So this professor was teaching Zane Hodges' book, Absolutely Free, to his class. And a lot of the students in the class said, no, 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 we do not agree with this position. And they said, we know a local pastor, that was me, who takes a different point of view, and I believe he can show you from Scripture why your position is wrong. 
So they said, would you be willing to allow him to come down to the class and we could have a little informal debate? So he said yes, and they came to me and asked if I would be willing to do this. And, um, and so I said, of course I would. And so word got around the college that this guy was going to debate this particular professor and other classes wanted to join in. Oh, we'd like to hear this. This will surely be good. And before you know it, even local pastors in the area heard about the debate and they called the school and asked if there's somehow they could attend. So the president of the college decided to make the debate not a classroom debate, but an entire chapel debate. So here I am coming into the hornet's nest, having to discuss this issue to the glory of God with an entire student body and local pastors in the area who obviously had differing ideas and positions on this subject. Well, during the debate, we were asked this question. Does regeneration precede faith or must faith precede regeneration? Of course, the professor's position was in accordance with Zane Hodges. And that was this, that faith is an expression of man's free will. And when exercised, it makes possible the Holy Spirit's work in salvation. Or to say it another way, saving faith is a free will decision that cooperates with God's agenda to forgive sinners through the work of Calvary's cross. In refuting this particular position, John Piper in his new book labels this self-determining faith. In other words, man is actually determining if he will let God save him. And by the way, there's, that position is everywhere today. People believe that you actually have the final choice, the final decision. You must take the final step to determine whether you are in fact saved. God has sent His Son to the cross to die for your sin, but you must get yourself to the cross in order to believe and receive the gift. What we have really here is a synergy, a cooperation between God and man. But is this what the Bible teaches? Must a person believe first in order to be regenerated? Or does Scripture teach that a person must be regenerated so that he can believe? Notice that word. It's part of our text this morning. And it's an important part of our text. Do we need life in order to believe? Or do we need to believe in order to have life? I believe that order is very, very important. And it shapes the evangelical landscape today. On many occasions, R.C. Sproul has made crystal clear... If there's one phrase that captures the essence of Reformed theology, it is the little phrase, regeneration precedes faith. God must first open the heart and the mind before a sinner can believe and be saved. A man or a woman must first be born again before having the ability to believe and receive the Lord. 
We see this with Lydia in Acts 16, verse 14. God first opened her heart, and then she believed the gospel message delivered by Paul. John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Regeneration, he says, precedes faith. In Luke 24, 45, the disciples were ignorant regarding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, on many occasions, they tried to prevent Him from going to the cross and dying for their sin. And then in that particular passage, it says that Jesus then opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And the Holy Spirit must do that according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 for you and I to believe and receive the Lord. John 6, verse 44, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. God, not man, must initiate. Now the book of Titus, and we're going to look at this passage here in a few moments, is three chapters long. But really it is a powerful blueprint on how to build a healthy church. I didn't say a perfect church. There's no perfect churches because we're here. And there's no perfect people. Not yet. But Titus, or Paul through Titus, is seeking really to reflect the church that Jesus is building by His grace. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And nothing will prevail against it. And if you'll look here in chapter 1 for just a moment and verse 5, Paul charges Titus with the task of revitalization. Titus was to put what remained into order. The NAS says to set in order what remains. The Greek word is to reprove or correct to fix what is deficient or broken. And if I could take a moment to summarize what Paul says is needed in every local church, it really would be these three ecclesiastical elements. Chapter 1, qualified leadership. Chapter 2, authentic discipleship. And chapter 3, gospel stewardship. Now there's all little tidbits of truth woven in and out through those three chapters that are important, but if we had to boil it down to three primary, primary principles that God is concerned about as we build the church that Jesus is building, it would be qualified leadership, authentic discipleship, and gospel stewardship. And why we will spend the remainder of our time on the third aspect of building a healthy church, which is gospel stewardship, I want to say a few words about the other two components. Because one, to the glory of God, I believe this church gets it. Which is why Sandy and I are members here. But also because you need to know that the evangelical landscape of churches throughout our land is so, so broken that it needs the help of Pastor Titus and others like him to make these necessary repairs. In the words of Steve Lawson, there is a famine in the land. 
People are starving for spiritual truth and they need churches that are being built on a biblical foundation with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Uh, How many of you heard Eric Bancroft when he was with us last month? Eric um, shared a little bit about some of his history and part of that history included a church that he pastored in Indianapolis for 10 years. One of the things that he said is that the first five years were difficult. I hear him. I completely understand perhaps why it was so difficult. When any pastor comes in to revitalize a church, one of the things they often find is that the leadership that leads that church is not qualified. In fact, they probably were invited into that position not on a biblical model, but on a business model. So many churches in our land today appoint leaders in their positions on the basis of their success in business or their reputation within the community, but not based on the biblical qualifications that are listed here in Titus chapter 1. Trying to restore a church that has lost its purpose and place in power is difficult work, especially when the people in that church come in with a consumer mindset rather than being a humble servant worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. I really do appreciate the worship that we have here. It directs our hearts heavenward. It tries to stay as far away as a horizontal relationship about me, myself, and I and direct our hearts to the Lord Jesus and glorify His name. All of the songs this morning, and we didn't coordinate this. You guys didn't know what I was going to preach on. You guys only knew my title and the text. But almost all of the music this morning, if you notice, was directing our hearts to the praise and glory of whom? The Lord. The Lord. But please notice that Titus's first job to begin revitalizing this church was to appoint qualified elders. Men who manifest the qualities and characteristics consistent with the kind of elders that God has called to lead His church. Men who can preach and pray and protect and oversee the work of the ministry. Most broken churches don't do that. All you need is a proven track record in the community operating a successful business or your well-liked Because you have a wonderful personality. And by the way, I'm not discounting the fact that many of these men are not wonderful men. They're wonderful men. They just don't have the qualities that God requires for elders in the church. Uh, About 17 years ago, I pastored a church in the Sacramento area. That's in California, for those of you that have never traveled west of the Mississippi. And it, was, it really functioned more like a business than a New Testament church. And while my task was to fix some things that were broken, I didn't really realize how broken this church was. And I had no idea that some of the fractures were actually at the top among the elders. And unfortunately, some of those leaders didn't think they were part of the problem. 
And then when the Constitution required that we select additional elders for the board, I discovered that the church's bylaws actually prohibited the staff pastors from being involved in the process. I thought, that's rigged. I should have read the fine print. And so as it turned out, two of the new nominees in my judgment, were not even saved, let alone qualified. At this particular church, we had our business meetings in between the two services, a service in the morning, an early morning service, and a late morning service. And if we ever needed a business meeting, it would be squeezed in between that time. Usually the Sunday schools met at that hour. And one of the men who was about 50 years old at the time who was being nominated to be a new leader, was to give his testimony uh, amongst the congregation so people would get to know who he is and what he believed. And when he stood up to share a little bit about his life, he cited his sixth grade confirmation class as his qualification for serving. And then another man's wife stood up and said, Oh, by the way, I'm sorry that my husband is not here this morning to speak with you, but all of you know how he likes to sleep in on Sunday and ride his motorcycle. But because he was the town judge and well-liked, the church voted him in as an elder the very next week for a three-year term. I resigned the following week. Broke my heart. Sometimes I still wonder if that was the right decision. But Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that we need to forget what lies behind and press on. And so we did. We had a wonderful, beautiful ministry in Oregon, in Hood River, Oregon, for the past 14 years before we arrived here to serve the Lord. Many of you know that Sandy has Lyme disease and some of the cold, raw winters were becoming too difficult for her to navigate, so we needed some warmth, and uh, we needed a good church, and here we are. Thank you for loving on us, for caring for us, and, uh, and Denny and I are, are especially appreciative of the fact that you're willing to take old guys like us and use us, so, so thank you, thank you. Secondly, a healthy church cultivates an atmosphere of authentic discipleship. That's chapter 2. To simplify, relationships are more important than programs. If you look at the text, older saints, both men and women, are to bring along, come alongside the younger and disciple them and love them and care for them and teach them and build them up in the faith. Here, the one another's are not just preached about, they're practiced. Authentic discipleship cares about people and their spiritual growth. Relationships become more the norm than programs. Oh, certainly programs are needed and necessary at times, but individual people, your soul needs to be shepherded and cared for. That's exactly what Paul is telling Titus to consider as he builds the church to the glory of God and for the praise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Living the Christian life is better learned in the context of doing life together than just sitting in a classroom. Yes, classrooms and instruction and teaching is needed. Preaching every Sunday from, well, not this pulpit, but a better one, is what you've come to hear. Hopefully I'm not disappointing you this morning if you came to hear Pastor Justin, um, because we love our pastor as well. And knowledge is important. Classrooms are helpful. But authentic discipleship takes place when iron sharpens iron as one man or one woman sharpens another. And you know what I mean. When people get involved in your lives to show you and help you to see what the Lord is doing in His church and to help you deal with sin and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, when they sort of take you by the hand and they lead you along and they care for your soul, that's wonderful. And that's really what chapter 2 is all about. And by the way, these principles are so important to Paul that he says this to Titus. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul knows that Titus will likely experience some pushback. This is not going to be an easy task. There may be leaders in the church who are not qualified and they're going to push against you when you begin to try to make these changes. But don't grow weary and lose heart. Persevere. Thirdly, and then this takes us to our text for the remainder of the morning, it is essential that healthy churches steward the Gospel well. As we continue to live in a performance-based culture, fighting the temptation to turn the gospel into a man-centered decision than a God-centered work of grace requires teaching and protection. And I believe today the gospel is currently under attack. In fact, many others do. It's one of the reasons why John Piper wrote his new book, What is Saving Faith? There have been a series of books over the last five years or so on the gospel alone. And you would think that the church would understand the gospel by now. Why do we need more books on the gospel? Why? Because the devil is hard at work trying to turn the gospel upside down on its head and wanting to convince you to believe that you are actually the most important thing in the midst of the gospel, not God. As Justin pointed out a few months ago from the Gospel of John in John chapter 3, the new birth is not a human decision according to the will of man, but a work of the Spirit convicting, correcting, and converting sinners to saints. Paul is very clear here that no believer should credit themselves with the gift of salvation because of free will faith. Because that's not what saves us. In fact, if you will notice in this text, the word faith is not even used. Boasting in what we have done to get saved is a temptation we must all avoid. Especially if God is going to get all the glory and the praise. It's not about what you have done. It's not about the card you signed, 
or the conference that you attended or the decision that you made. It's really all about what God has done to send His Son and rescue you from the domain of darkness into His kingdom of light and save you from your sins so that you would become a creature who now can give God all the glory and praise. You see, when I was an unbeliever, maybe I'll do what Justin does for a minute, I'll walk around. Can you believe the gift that he has? I mean, I don't even know why he needs a pulpit. He just comes and he sets his Bible on the pulpit and then he spends 45-50 minutes walking all around the stage preaching the message from his head and his heart in an amazing way. I think he has the Bible all memorized. He's got every movie memorized. He's got every illustration. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. He's He's a gifted communicator. We are so blessed to have him open God's Word each and every Sunday and preach. Me, I need, I need my security blanket right here. And so our text this morning begins in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Who saves sinners? God does. And yet, because we have a tendency to boast in the flesh about the things that we have done, Scripture continually reminds us that our boast must always be in the Lord. A parallel passage to this text is in Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, it's the text that God used to bring me to Himself. You probably know it well, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you find yourself putting yourself in the midst of God's salvation, you may be headed in the wrong direction. Because it isn't about you, it's about what God has done in and through you for His glory and His praise. He saves us. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, we read this. God has chosen the foolish, the weak, the base, so that no man may boast. So that no man may take credit for the salvation he has received. And then he quotes Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Let him who boasts, you know it, boast in the Lord. Often when I hear believers speak about their own salvation, they tell me about the things they have done to get saved. Praying a prayer, walking an aisle, attending a crusade, raising a hand. They love the hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. Because they put the emphasis on themselves. Here's what I did in order to get saved. And yet, Paul is telling Titus, reminding Titus of what God actually did to bring salvation about. By the way, this isn't just a contemporary problem. The disciples battled their flesh all the time and wrestled with the same sin of self-glory, self-preservation, and self-esteem. 
In Matthew 18, verse 27, Peter, who was the disciple that often spoke without thinking, he reacts to Jesus who was teaching how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are confused and and Peter speaks for them and he says, then who can be saved? I mean, lots of people around here have money. Look at all of the buildings and look at all of the things that man has done. If the rich man can't get into the kingdom, then who in the world can be saved? And what does Jesus say? He says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Your salvation, if you truly are in Christ, is a work of God. It is not the work of man. We have no ability to contribute anything to the process. God must save us, and He does. And all of the glory and the credit go to Him. So when you begin to process the question, why has God saved you? He has saved you for Himself. He has saved you so that you would bring glory to His name. He has saved you so that you would make much of Him, not make much of self. In John 15, 16, Jesus continued to renew His disciples' minds with truth, giving credit to where credit is due. Especially when the disciples would boast about their decision to follow Jesus. On another occasion, I remember Peter saying, Lord, we've left our houses, we've left our jobs, we've left everything to follow you. What's in this for us? Tell us, Lord, we've made so many sacrifices for you in order to be here. Tell us, what you're going to do to reward us for our departure from home. By the way, the best sacrifice that was made was not made by Peter, but by whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. As we begin this new year, in fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 said that his preaching was to know nothing except Jesus Christ crucified. And I pray that all of you would think of nothing more, or at least nothing as more important than Jesus Christ crucified, who went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, was buried, rose again the third day to prove His victory over death and the darkness that's all around us and the sin that so easily entangles us. So that you would rejoice in Jesus and praise the Lord from this day forward and forevermore. But Jesus in John 15 verse 16 said, Hey guys, listen. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. If faith precedes regeneration, then salvation is actually a synergy between God and man. Man cooperating with God to make salvation possible. But salvation is all the work of God. I had a friend in Portland, Oregon. His name's John Hendricks. And he developed a website called monergism.com. I'd write it down if you're not familiar with it. Monergism.com. 
It's an excellent resource with all kinds of helps to equip you. And on the front page, as you click to the front page, you'll read this, quote, Monergism is a theological term in which the prefix mono means one, and the suffix ergism from the root ergon means to work. Or together they mean the work of one. Salvation is of the Lord alone, not a cooperation of man and God, If anyone is to be saved, Jesus must grant everything we need for salvation, including a new heart to believe. And by the way, he's only stating there what the new covenant promises in Jeremiah and Ezekiel promise. If you read there, how many times will you see the words, I will, referring to God. I will do this, I will do that, I will provide you with new life, I will give you a new heart, I'll remove the heart of stone, I'll give you a spirit, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to obey all of the commandments that you have been called to obey in the flesh which you couldn't do. If you're here visiting with us this morning, I'm one of those individuals that thought that I could earn my way to God. I thought that salvation, although I didn't use that term back then, uh, was something that I could receive on the basis of the things that I had done. In fact, the first gentleman to kind of open the door or open my eyes to the truth of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 said... um, If you were to go home today and get hit by a car or a truck or whatever and die, and you would have to stand before God and He would ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell Him? And I was so excited. I mean, I had done a lot of things in my life. And and I thought, man, I'm going to get in. And then I started to list all my good deeds. Maybe I'm hitting a chord. All the things that I had done in my life to please people, to help people, to contribute to society in ways that I thought were honorable and decent. And I started listing those things for me, and then he started in his Bible that I can't even read because the print is so small. He turned to Ephesians 2 and he said, read this. I could read it then, I can't read it now. And yet I didn't really know where it was he was directing me. All I remembered for months and months and months to follow were those words, for by grace are you saved through faith, not because of faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What was I doing? Boasting. What was I depending on? My works. And he left and I left and it was oh, a year or two later that I met somebody else who asked me the very same question, only this time I was not in Boston, I was in Chicago. And I said to him, do you have a cousin back in Boston? He asked me the same thing. And how this kind of subject was broached is we were going to sing some Christmas carols Uh, at a nursing home, and we're driving by, and there's an ambulance to our left, and they're loading somebody into the ambulance on a stretcher, and he said to me, if that were you, and you were to die tonight, and then he asked the question, and I didn't know anything else to say, so I started parading my good works before him as well. 
And then a third person in the state of Maryland asked me the same question. Only I knew this man. He worked for me. He was my best employee. And he came and picked me up at the airport. I flew in from Dallas. That was to Baltimore in that day. Two weeks earlier, there was an American Airlines plane crash and some people were killed. And so he said, look, do you like to fly? And I said, well, it's what I have to do for business. And he said, well, if you were to be in that plane that crashed two weeks ago and you died like some did, and God were to say to you when you stood before Him, why should I let you into heaven? I said, whoa, 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 Mike. You're the third person to ask me this question. Obviously, I'm getting the answer wrong. What's up? And he took me to the Bible and showed me Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And he clearly explained the Gospel to me that it's not because of works or deeds that I have done in righteousness, which is exactly what our text says. Paul says to Titus, listen, be careful. Make this abundantly clear because the whole world lives in a works righteousness system and they're going to think that somehow it's what they do that gets them into heaven. And you need to remind them that it is not because of the deeds that they have done in righteousness. By the way, it's interesting he uses the word righteousness. Because there are some things that people do, good deeds, that are helpful to society. If you look at some of the hospitals around us, uh, they were built on religious systems that are seeking to help people. And yet he said it is not because of those things. In fact, James in James 2.10 says, if you keep the whole law, everything, but stumble in one point, you're guilty of what? All of it. Why? Well, if you go back to verse 3 in our text here, because we're sinners. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. When you really begin to honestly deal with your life, you begin to see yourself as the Bible sees you as a sinner who needs the grace and love of God through Jesus Christ. I need my sins forgiven and I cannot forgive myself. Jesus must do it. He's the only one qualified to do it. He lived a perfect life. We just finished a season in which we celebrated the virgin birth. Jesus was without sin and He went to the cross to die for your sin so that you, believing in Him, receiving what He did for you, you might have eternal life. But then Paul turns things here with Titus to some positives. He says, according to His own mercy... According to his own mercy. Any of you ever cried out for mercy? I did. Because of my size, somebody thought it was a bright idea to sign me up for the wrestling team. They, they needed some lightweights in order to wrestle. You say, well, Pastor, you don't look like a wrestler. I've lost a lot of my muscle mass. You need to know that. Getting old does those things. The outer man is decaying. But at one time, I guess I was competent enough to be in the lightweight division and to wrestle, but I also had a cocky mouth. And I got a little too cocky with a heavyweight. 
And before I even knew it, I don't even think I had the last words out of my mouth. He had me down on the mat, and he had his fingers digging into my shoulders to the point where I was in significant pain. And all I remember is crying out for mercy. Please, I'll never do it again. I'll never say anything bad about you again. Please, please let me go. Well, the reason why we need God's mercy here is because the wrath of God is coming. If you believe the promises of God, the promises of God not only include eternal life for those who believe, but they include God's wrath for those who disbelieve. For the unbelievers that Pastor Justin spoke about a couple of weeks ago that refuse to repent and trust Christ as Savior, they will experience the wrath and and justice of God. Uh, Eternal pain awaits them. And so... Paul is reminding Titus that unbelievers who now are saved by the grace of God have received the mercy of God. God says, no wrath, no judgment. I've placed that wrath and that judgment on my son at Calvary's cross. He endured the punishment that you deserve. Wow. Wow. Is that good news? Jesus Christ endured on Calvary's cross the punishment that all of us deserve. Mercy. In Romans chapter 9, I think it's verses 15 and 16, Paul is quoting the Old Testament and he's speaking about salvation and how God in His sovereignty chooses and elects a people for His own possession who will... Praise His name forevermore. And He says there in that context, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And God has mercy on those that He's chosen to save by His grace. Out of His goodness and loving kindness, God extends mercy. And then He says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Two other words there that I want to take a little bit more time to explore. The first one being regeneration. You need regeneration in order to believe. You need regeneration in order to be able to receive the blessings and the goodness and kindness of the Lord. Your heart needs to be turned in order for you to embrace the things that God gives to you. Otherwise, in our stubbornness and in our sin, we would refuse the Lord as we've done for years and years and years until the grace of God saves us. Ephesians chapter 2 starts out by telling us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. There's absolutely nothing that we can do to make us alive. In fact, if you keep reading there, we come to the realization that by the grace of God, Jesus is the one who makes us alive. He's the one that gives us new birth. He opens our blind eyes so that we might spiritually see. It's a marvelous chapter. If there's one chapter in all the Bible that would be worth memorizing, it would be chapter 2. But precede that with chapter 1 because the drum roll, David, where are you? 
We need a drum roll and a crescendo here because what Paul is doing with the Ephesian believers is he wants to remind them of the goodness and greatness of our God and, and why salvation is such a glorious thing and why they are saved not through their works but through God's grace and love in Christ. Regeneration. I don't know if any of you have a water softener, but if you've owned one in your life, you'll understand this. The water softener works at night by purging and purifying the old water and making all things new for the morning. So that when you step into the shower in the morning, you've got fresh, clean water because it had been purged the night before by the water softener. And if you'll take out your little instructions, maybe you don't have it anymore, but if you take it out, it'll describe that process as the process of regeneration. Very interesting. Because that's what God's doing. He's taking out the old and He's making all things new. What else does the text say there? He says, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I'm a new man in Christ. Because of the work that God did, I have been saved by His grace and I am now new. If any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. You have a new heart, a new disposition, a new love for Jesus. Something you never had. If I have time and I'm running out of time, maybe I should tell this story right now. I had a friend in college named Joe. Uh, Siri, we don't need to hear from you right now. Quiet. That was crazy. I had a friend in college named Joe. He became a sports writer and worked for the LA Times. He was kind of on the hockey beat. And when we moved to California to begin seminary training, um, I found out that Joe worked out there, so I wanted to connect with him. He was a Jewish man, but we had a good relationship in college, and um, now that I'm a believer in Christ, I wanted to reach out to him with the gospel, and so I finally was able to get in touch with him. He called me back, and I invited him to come over to our home. Now, I don't know whether we had five or six kids by this point, but we had a whole bunch of kids, a small house, and, uh, and Joe was coming to dinner. And I actually invited Joe to stay the night. I said, look, there's no reason to rush back if you don't have to be anywhere. He said, no, i got a hockey game to cover on Saturday night, but I don't have to be anywhere before that. So we agreed to have him come, stay over, and we just enjoy and catch up on old times. So Joe comes. Hadn't seen him in, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And uh, we, you know, had some just surface conversations, etc., etc., and he met my family, my, my lovely wife, uh, Sandy, and, and he was a single guy. So the, the, the married world, the family world was not his world. But furthermore, God had so changed my heart. My desires were new. My behaviors were new. Everything about me was different than the Bruce Parker he knew back in college. And we had dinner together and probably we chatted a little bit more from, 
for about 45 minutes to an hour. I tried to probe a little to kind of get to know about his spiritual life and where he was at. And then I'll never forget, he said, you know, Bruce, I don't think this is going to work out. I think I'm going to leave, not stay in the night. I said, really, Joe? I mean, our kids were so sweet, not his world. My wife was so sweet, not his world. I probably wasn't so sweet, but I was his world right now. And he didn't like it. I didn't have the foul mouth I used to have. I wasn't talking about dirty jokes like I used to. I I didn't do the things, not because I didn't want to do them. I had no desire at all for those things. My, My life had been radically changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. I became a new creature in Christ by the grace of God. My life reflected what Paul is writing to Titus about here. And those things are poured out richly through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit so that we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And by the way, as you're following your Bible reading program, whenever you get to the book of Titus, you're going to notice some things about this book that I haven't yet spoken about. In fact, it begins in verse 8, if you'll just take a quick look with me. He said, this is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Six times in this book, The fruit of good's works is evidenced in those who believe. Be careful to devote yourselves to good works. The the, the qualified elder is devoted to good works, not the evil deeds of those who are false. In chapter 2, we are again to be teaching the younger to love what is good and to devote themselves to good works. In fact, if you look at the very end of chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus gave Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. You say, why the emphasis on good works? Ephesians 2 does just the same thing. 8 and 9 is probably the verses you like to memorize, but you got to couple it with verse 10 because the grace that has saved you by the love of God, without any interference from you, also is a grace that God predestined for good works in your life. So what's the big deal? Because the way the world gets to witness God in your life is through the works that He's doing through you. Did you know to that? The world will notice Jesus in your life through the works of love that you do on His behalf. Six times in this book, but you can read about it all through the Scriptures. Good works are the fruit of true saving faith. That was part of the debate that we had back in that college in New York because Zane Hodges didn't believe that True saving faith produced good works. They were optional. And the Bible says, no, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you have His Spirit dwelling inside you, then you will produce the fruit of good works. And so let your light shine. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 says, so that people on the outside will see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Wow. 
So, people of God, saints, converted from sinners to saints, celebrate the new year. Let's begin together by praising and worshiping and adoring our Lord Jesus Christ because it's all about Him. He's the one who has saved us in the first place. And if you're still a sinner and you haven't yet been converted, I want to urge you with everything that I can to believe on the Lord Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father except through Him. He is the only way to God. That's why God sent Him into this world. Embrace Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and trust the Lord Jesus with everything that you have. I'm believing right now that the Holy Spirit may be moving in your heart. You came here this morning because you needed to hear from God. Well, I pray that God has spoken through His Word, through the book of Titus, through my lips as weak and frail as they might be, so that that you would open your heart to the Lord and His work in your life and be saved. Saving faith is all of God, all of grace, and all because of what Jesus did, not because of anything that you did. And what a blessed way to begin the new year is to trust Jesus Christ with your life rather than the good things that you think will earn yourself a place in heaven one day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for loving us and caring for us and saving us. Thank You that salvation is all of grace and that saving faith comes as a gift from You. Stir up that gift within our hearts that we might praise You even more. And Lord, rescue some who have come to us this morning who are outside of Christ as of right now. May we begin this new year celebrating who You are, not who we are, and giving our lives to You for Your glory so that the Gospel would go forward in a powerful way. And saving faith would be realized as the gift that you give to sinners whom you transform into saints. And we'll thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.